Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Sunday, July 19th, week one of FAB, of waivers of this 2020 season, only about four months later than we had originally thought when we were drafting teams back during the winter. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller, and we're here to try and make sense of all of it. Uh, This is going to be probably the weirdest waiver wire episode I've ever done, talking about fantasy baseball, Beller. There's been nothing quite like this because... Uh, There's a bunch of people out there who did build teams several months ago where uh, a lot of guys who were injured, like Aaron Hicks and Ioannis Cespedes and Rich Hill, were undraftable. Those guys are going to be huge bid players because they could be impact guys now that they're healthy. There's going to be some leagues that just drafted in the last couple of days where those guys were mid-round picks and the pool of players to choose from is very, very thin. There are some ugly closer situations to get to as well. Um, So really, a little bit of everything, so that's fun, but in terms of what to bid precisely, I don't know if I've ever felt less confident in throwing out percentages and numbers than I did when I wrote the ads and drops piece this week. Yeah, you're not alone. I mean, and I think it's uh, it, it's wise of us to just admit that up front, not just not as a disclaimer, but just uh, to understand that we're going into this uh, not totally blind, but in uncharted territory. And we were talking right before we recorded, and I said I'd be lying if I knew exactly how to attack this week's waiver wire. It's going to be very interesting to to me what happens in week two to see like do things settle down? Do people realize they spent too much or weren't aggressive enough? Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens after that, but we can't get to week two until we have week one, and so I'm excited to start talking about this. I'm so happy that we get to talk about this, uh, right? It should have been, what, this is July 9th, yeah, July 19th today, right? We should have been, like, this should have been old and tall, old, old hat, oh, waiver show, let's do it, let's do it, we're ready, no big deal, but this is, like, exciting that we're doing this in mid-July, so uh, starting off with Aaron Hicks, right? I mean, that's that's the, uh, the big name on the board here. Yeah, I guess maybe a little bit of a debate here. Would you rather have Hicks or Ioannis Cespedes? I mean, I think for me, there's a slight preference towards Hicks because he provides a lot of defensive value. I think that keeps him on the field a bit more. I think both could see occasional rest because of the recent injuries. Hicks, of course, coming back from Tommy John surgery. But he was playing in uh, intra-squad games for the Yankees almost two full weeks ago. I think uh, two weeks ago tomorrow, Monday, was the first time that they actually played a full intra-squad game. He was out there right away. It doesn't seem like he has any restrictions at this point. I think the power that we saw from him two years ago was holding up in the partial season that he played last year. There's a legitimate like 30 home run power bat there. He steals some bases, and he gets on base enough to be in the mix as a possible leadoff guy for this Yankees team. I was a little bit surprised, and this is probably because of all the injuries they've dealt with in recent years. Hicks moves around in the lineup quite a bit, but it's usually through the first four spots in the order. Occasionally, he drops lower than that, but he kind of ticks all the boxes of everything you'd want in a player to be added to your team. So if you're dealing with a situation where you know someone's dealing with an injury unexpectedly and you just need that offensive boost, I think Aaron Hicks is probably the best way to get it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he w- he would be my preference over Cespedes. Uh, you still, I think there are more injury concerns with Cespedes. And Cespedes would obviously be my number two guy who I'd be going after if I could only get one guy in the wire this week. Uh, you know, he would be uh, highly prioritized. But you really hit the nail on the head with Hicks. I-, I wonder if he'll be able to hit in the top of this order if they're healthy. Right? It's hard to see DJ LeMahieu, Aaron Judge, Glaber Torres, Giancarlo Stanton. Gary Sanchez not being the top five in this order. But the beauty of the Yankees order is that no matter where you hit, you're going to have some sort of run scoring, run production uh, um, upside, no matter where it is. Uh, he could hit you know, six, seven, and he'll have all those guys on base in front of him. He could hit eight or nine, and he'll have those guys coming up behind him. So maybe his run scoring upside increases a little bit. You love the environment that he is going to be hitting in in New York, no matter where he ends up in the order. So even if we don't see him toward the top where we've become accustomed to seeing him in 2018 and 2019 before he got hurt, still going to be a great spot for him. And like you said, can do a little bit of everything. And I agree, the power does definitely feels real that we saw in 2018, 12 homers last year in, what, about a third of a season. So uh, I think Aaron Hicks is, uh, is a guy who I would be willing to – make almost a football-style bid on in Week 1, uh, trusting that he can be someone who is an everyday big-time contributor for me. Yeah, I think he's among the players I look at in the column this week where I recommended 15 to 20% in a 15-team mixed league. I mean, he's available, I think, in almost all great fantasy baseball invitational leagues. It's probably going to take more than that. I, I think I, yeah, yeah. what I failed to do, I failed to put universal inflation 
into the bids <laughs> in the article. Yes. But I, I felt like it's better. Our, our minds are more set up to think about how we would ordinarily bid on these players. And then I think it's right. sort of on every individual player to say, okay, how aggressive do I want to be? How aggressive do I need to be? I think it's particularly difficult with Hicks because he could be a top 25 outfielder. That's not at all a stretch. Guys that are top 25 outfielders go kind of in the back of the top 100 range usually. We're talking about Michael Brantley, Eddie Rosario type players, uh, Nick Castellanos. I mean, that's what Hicks could reach. And if you're in a league that hasn't drafted yet, there's some people out there listening who have maybe drafted a few leagues. They have a couple more coming up. Aaron Hicks is going around pick 250. He's one of the more undervalued outfielders in the pool for leagues who haven't drafted yet either. So definitely a player I like. Uh, would be willing to break the piggy bank and, and be a lot more aggressive, especially if I had some concerns about my overall offensive production due to injuries, opt-outs, whatever it might be. Just comparing him to Cespedes for a moment, I mean, I think the universal DH flipped the switch and really made Cespedes uh, a guy that was going to be difficult to roster initially in mixed leagues to almost a, a must-own player, even in shallow mixed leagues. I don't know if I would go as aggressive bidding-wise in shallow mixed leagues because the playing time with the, the crowded depth chart they have in New York could work against him at times. I know you're a big fan of J.D. Davis, who's also a winner when it comes to the Universal DH opening up one more spot in this lineup each and every day. Uh, relative to Hicks, like let's just say you were going to bid... 350 out of 1,000 on Aaron Hicks. How much less are you looking to bid on Cespedes in the same sort of league? You know, it's really not that much less, right? Because I think both of these guys can be hugely impactful players, of course, and you're getting them right away week one, right? I mean, that's just, I mean, if you just think of the math of it, you're getting, they are able to contribute for your team the entire season. Uh, so, and with him, th- these are like the two obvious standout hitters. So I just have a preference for Hicks. Like he would be, you know, my priority number one guy. And then, uh, Cespedes is a fallback, but I still want to come out of it with one of the two of them if I can. So I would put a, a lesser dollar value on on Cespedes than I would on Hicks, but not much. If you, so if you say three fifty on Hicks, I would probably go to like three hundred, three twenty on Cespedes, something like that, because these are two guys who can really move the needle for you, and they could do it for the full sixty games. And you're just not going to find anyone else like that. Even if we're talking about someone who jumps up next week. They're only going to do it for 53 games and not the full 60. So these are really two guys. Again, a football-style bids I would be considering for these guys because of just how big they can be and how much they can, how long they can do it. They can do it for literally the entire season. Yeah, I think the way this team is built right now, Robinson Cano might occasionally get days off at second base. That could mm-hmm. enable some shuffling around the infield. But I think Jeff McNeil's in the lineup every day. Alonzo's obviously in the lineup every day. Nimmo in center field mostly for defense. He gets on base. Nice player. Ahmed Rosario at shortstop. Like It's pretty clear at most spots. And even like they added Melky Cabrera for outfield depth. Dominic Smith is probably more of a reserve than a starter, even though he can play a couple of spots. So I actually think Cespedes' playing time is reasonably safe because you can play J.D. Davis pretty much every day in left field and still have that DH spot left over for Cespedes. This is a conversation that had they not added the universal DH for this year, uh, I think the, the tune would be a lot different. But Cespedes has never been a below-average hitter in his career in yeah. a full season. He's always produced as a middle-of-the-order power bat. So really all it comes down to is health. And I think his recent injury track record is a bit more scary than Hicks's by comparison. Um, now the other big bid player I mentioned at the top, Rich Hill, uh, not available, of course, in leagues that have been drafting recently, but available in leagues that were drafting back in the winter because he was going to be out until probably June based on most of the timetables. One thing that changed my willingness to go completely bonkers with the bidding on Rich Hill was our conversation from about a month ago with Virginia Zakis of Inside Injuries. I think I was overlooking that a revision of the UCL is actually a pretty significant surgery. So... I believe in the talent. I love the organization. I think the Twins are in a great spot. We've talked about them a lot. I I love the (laughs) Twins. I I, I hate to say it about a Minnesota team, uh, but the Twins are well run. I think they will manage their pitching correctly. I'm all in on all of them, like Barrios, Odorizzi, Maeda, Rich Hill. I actually have guys up and down this roster on just about all my teams. It's, (laughs) It's weird, but Hill is the one player I just, I think, in a... 12 start sort of season I'm so much less worried about the usual things that plague him you know he's got the blister problems and 
just seems to be one of those guys that finds the IL a lot. I mean, look at his three-year averages and innings pitched. He's averaged 109 innings pitched the last three seasons. But you get a massive strikeout rate, and you get elite ratios, and it's just so tempting. If you draft it early, he's available, and you lost any one of Chris Sale or Noah Syndergaard or Luis Severino, you could solve that problem in one bid. That's where the temptation comes in to push in a lot of chips, to go very aggressive and to make Rich Hill sort of the pitcher equivalent of what Aaron Hicks and Yohannes Cespedes are on the position player side this week. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you you hit everything right there, too. And, and so I guess really uh, the, the more interesting question we hear with Rich Hill, I mean, we know the talent, we know the injury risks, we know the fact that if you're only asking him to make you know, 10 or 12 starts, the injury risks aren't as significant as if you're asking him to make 30 starts. Uh, to me, the question is, let's say you are someone who's in a position where Obviously, you want one of these big names because why wouldn't you want to add to your team with guys who would have been easily draftable back in March if we knew they were going to play a full season? Uh, if you don't have a huge need at hitter or pitcher, right? If it's if one isn't obviously more needed on your team than the other, would you prioritize Hill over one of these hitters or would you go for one of the hitters over Hill? I think I would go the hitters over Hill. Um I think there's just a, a few more ways they can provide value. I, mean, I think it's it's just easier to possibly stream and, and work around not having that one singular pitcher over mm-hmm. the course of the year anyway. Like yep. I, the, the FOMO will be greater with both Hicks and Cespedes than it will be with Rich Hill for me. Uh, but it, it's a slim difference. I mean, I, I do think you could justify pushing a third of your budget at Rich Hill especially if you're one of those situations where you lost one of those aces. Uh, are you in a similar range for your high-end bid on Rich Hill, or would you go a bit lighter than that? I would I would be in that range if I were one of those, maybe not if I was really needing to replace a Chris Sale. Uh, maybe not quite. It wouldn't take that much for me to go you know, full freight on Rich Hill. But it would be, it would be a little bit less. It would be just a little bit less, uh, just because of even though um, making 10 starts isn't the same as making 30, an injury can happen at any time, right? I mean, he's still a guy who's prone to injury, prone to the blister issue. Is always going to be something that's in the back of your head. Uh, and it's not like it needs 15 starts to crop up. So because of that, there is a little bit more risk you have to acknowledge with Rich Hill. And even though I'm saying be aggressive, be aggressive, be aggressive, and I do think we should be, and I certainly will be, there's still going to be guys who come up over the next couple of weeks that you're going to want to have money around for. So when you factor that in with the risks that Hill brings to the table, I would be a little less. So again, if we're just using, just since you know for the sake of conversation, if we're using that 350 number for Hicks, and I said maybe 300, 320 on uh, Cespedes, I'd probably be more in like the... 250 to 270 range for Hill, I think. Yeah, and I think if you're just going to try and kind of keep the rest of the league honest, you want to at least push 15% of your budget out there for Rich Hill. and That mm-hmm. gives you a chance to get him discounted in case the room sleeps on him. I just don't think any room is going to yeah. be sleeping on the waiver wire th- at all this week. Even, yeah. even leagues where people are generally lighter on bids or more likely to just miss a week. That's not going to happen. People Agreed. have been waiting for this for a very long time. Agree. Wait, let me let me say, if if you really want someone this week, I think you need to say, this is what I would bid for him at a normal time, and I really want him, so I need to tack on three to five percent because that just, I mean, like you said, you got to you got to account for some sort of inflation this week. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely a good starting point. If you think about it, like football too. I mean, there's only about ten weeks of fab bidding before you get to the playoff portion of uh, NFFC leagues. The bidding there is off the charts. You see three, four, five hundred, six hundred dollar bids all the time. You see that occasionally in the NFBC with closers who were just named the closer and then top prospects and they get called up. But I think this is going to look more like those bids this week once this thing runs later tonight. Uh, Let's move on to the group of players who are more widely available, even in leagues that have been drafting just in the last uh, week or so. I was surprised. We'll start with the position players this week. Steven Piscotty is available in a lot of leagues. He's kind of a fringy top 400 player if you look back at July and FBC ADP. It's a good Oakland lineup. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think this is a universally loved A's lineup in the fantasy community. When he's healthy, Piscotty is kind of a 270, 330, 470 guy. He's shown 25 home run power. Maybe he's hitting 6th or 7th in this A's order. I think he's got a spot to call his own. And as long as he's healthy, I mean, there were still some signs that he can do damage last year. We're talking about a 40.6% hard hit rate, and he had the second highest average exit velocity of his career uh, at 89.1 miles per hour 
last season. And the thing I like about Piscotti compared to you know Hicks and, and Cespedes in leagues where all of those guys are available, Piscotti is going to cost a small fraction of the price. I, I just think the fact that he's going undrafted in a lot of 12-teamers and he's barely drafted in 15-teamers means you can sneak him in for probably... 1% to 3% of your budget in a 12-teamer and probably about 5% of your budget in a 12-teamer. And you might end up with production that isn't that far off what the Cespedes owners are going to get. Yeah, the uh, the fact that he's so lightly gone after in the 15-teamers uh, really surprised me. 12-teamers, not so much. Outfield's very deep. 15-team, I would think he would be, you know, if I was just guessing, you know, intuiting where he would be, I would think that he would be almost... You know, universally gone after just because of the, uh, the the potential that we've seen from him. I mean, this is a to me no brainer take a chance on guy, and I, this is a, a piece of analysis that I've leaned on quite a bit as we've been waiting for this baseball season to start. We talk about it in football all the time about getting yourself invested in good offenses, and like you said, this is a really good Oakland lineup. And even if he hits at the in the bottom third of the lineup, he's going to have a lot of opportunity to uh, produce some runs, to drive in some runs. When you're talking about guys like you know, Matt Chapman, Matt Olson, Mark Canna hitting right in front of him, uh, I mean, those guys are going to clear the bases quite a bit on their own, but those are still guys who are going to be getting on base, who are going to be turning the lineup over, and I, it's something that you really like to see. And so it can be a tiebreaker of sorts for a player, but Piscotti isn't even someone who necessarily needs a tiebreaker with the power that we've seen from him in the past. So I think the numbers that you put on it are, um, are, are right on. I wouldn't go crazy for him just because... You know, we saw uh, what the downside of him can be as well. But man, if I uh, I would like a way to get invested in Oakland, and obviously you're not grabbing uh, Matt Chapman or Marcus Semien or Ramon Lariano right now. Yeah, a loaded top five, top mm-hmm. six group of hitters there. But you look at the second base platoon with Tony Kemp and Franklin Barreto, the catcher spot. I mean, they're young and they're really interesting at that position with Sean Murphy and Austin Allen. I think Piscotty hits above the combinations of those players. So yeah. he's at least the seventh hitter and maybe you see him creep up a little bit. If they have some injury issues or something else, I uh, can get a little closer to the middle third of that lineup, uh, but kind of just old and boring now, even though he's not even 30 years old, which is <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to believe that that's the new cutoff for, for old and boring. Potentially <laughs> part of it too, is that he doesn't steal bases. Yeah. You know, he, he doesn't really chip in much in that category. So that drags down his value even further, uh, but definitely a, a nice fallback option or even just a primary option if you're in a league that drafted recently and need some help mm-hmm. in the outfield. Uh, the other name that really kind of caught my eye at a similar price point is Jake Lamb. The Diamondbacks have had a couple of injuries with their first base DH mix. Christian Walker and Kevin Crone are a little bit dinged up. I don't think it's anything overwhelmingly serious in either case. I mean, I think Walker's got a day-to-day groin injury. Crone... I think it was something kind of similar, uh, hamstring injury, and he took some at-bats on Saturday. So I don't know if it's an IL situation for really either of those players, mm-hmm. but Jake Lamb's going to have a spot to play for the same reasons that Yohannes Cespedes is going to have a spot to play. Like The Diamondbacks having the universal DH, they were in a spot where Lamb was probably a two to three times per week starter for them prior to that change, and now I think he's back to that big side platoon opportunity, which he really thrived in before the shoulder injury that derailed him in 2018 it was still an issue for him in 2019 and kind of reading about how he was feeling last year it was a loss of confidence really that he could just let it rip at the plate so we're talking about a guy that had really just atrocious numbers in a half season a year ago dealt with another injury beyond the shoulder surgery while trying to work his way back in 2019 but hit 59 homers in 2016 and 2017 what do you make of Jake Lamb at this point? Do you think he's actually a viable corner option, especially with that increased uh, opportunity to play? I think he definitely is. I mean, shoulders are really, really bad injuries for power hitters, and usually we're more concerned about the the front shoulder. That was not the case for Jake Lamb. It was his back shoulder. When I say front back, I mean at the plate. So for a lefty like Jake Lamb, you're more concerned about the right shoulder since that's the one that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the swing. It was his left, but still, we saw the same thing with Michael Conforto. He hurt his back shoulder, and it just takes a while. Chris Bryant, another example of a guy, his was his front shoulder recently, who lost a lot of power, and it just takes some time, even when you're back on the field, to get that full power back the full range of motion I don't know what it is but we do know that it has happened with multiple guys now and you don't have to go too far back to find some really intriguing 
Jake Lamb's seasons, 2016-29 homers, 91 RBI, 2017-30 homers, 105 RBI, both those years, uh, decent enough in the average, uh, good OBP. I mean, this is a guy who could really do quite a bit uh, if he can just stay healthy. And now that he has that pretty much everyday spot in the lineup, I mean, I I, I think they're going to be hard-pressed to ever have him out of the lineup, uh, especially if he's hitting. I mean, they'll find a way to get him in there, uh, whether it's the DH, whether it is you know taking some ABs away from Christian Walker against righties if they want to get someone else in the DH spot and they move Jake Lamb out to first. Either way, I think they're going to find ways to get him in the lineup, uh, and he's just someone who it is very easy to see things going right for Jake Lamb, and that's the sort of guy I want to make a bet on at this point of the season. Yeah, you go back to that healthy season in 2017. He was 65th among qualified hitters in barrel rate, 9.3 barrels per batted ball event. So uh, put some kind of in the top 20% league-wide if you think about the number of qualified hitters who typically fall into that range. So really interesting player. Uh, comparing him to Piscotti, I mean, obviously as a corner guy versus an outfielder, I think the bids are similar. Mm-hmm. I think you could even sneak Lamb in for just a little bit less in some leagues. Uh, I mean, I hope he's owned in all NL only leagues. If he's not, I might even be more aggressive than the bid percentage I put in the article because I'm not worried about playing time. And I think big side platoon guys play enough in a format like an NL only league where the waiver wire is often completely barren. Uh, Another outfielder I wanted to talk about this week, Cameron Mabin really did some interesting things with the Yankees last season, 11 homers, nine steals. It's only 82 games. He changed his approach. He was hitting the ball in the air more than ever. Not surprisingly, exit velocity was up. Barrel rate was at a career best, 10.2%. I think he's going to lead off for the Tigers, Beller. I think it's a question of whether they're going to keep him in that role as an everyday guy all season or start cycling in some other young outfielders at some point. But it just kind of seems like if you read about Tigers camp, you get a lot of kind of nudges that Cameron Mabin is sort of an on-field leader for this group. And I think that's going to be important for how young this team is. Uh, it's a strange thing to to fold into the analysis, but it's just one little extra thing that makes me believe that they're actually fairly committed to giving him an opportunity, at least to begin the season, to be that primary center fielder. Yeah, I don't even see how they couldn't give him a pretty long leash uh, to be their primary center fielder and their leadoff man. And after what we saw from him with the Yankees last year, like you said, the 11 homers, the 9 steals, uh, 285, 364, 494 slash line. Why wouldn't they give him that opportunity? I think you would have to maybe be a little bit concerned about a potential trade. Obviously, uh, we cannot even begin to imagine what this year's trade deadline is going to look like, how teams are going to make those uh, choices. Are they going to feel you know, like we shouldn't be sending our players to these totally new environments? Like, Is that a, a humane thing for us to do? But I do think that Mabin's um, stance or maybe standing with the team as this you know veteran leader could maybe keep him in Detroit, which would probably be a good thing for his uh, for his fantasy value because you would have to think that any acquiring team maybe wouldn't be doing so to have him as a regular. And so it's another reason I think to buy into Cameron Mabin. Obviously, the offense is not going to be anything to write home about. It's not going to be a great offensive environment. But if he's leading off for this team every day. He's going to get himself quite a few ABs, quite a few plate appearances, and with what we saw from him last year, uh, plenty of reason to believe that he can repeat that in this 60-game season. Yeah, and I think he fits into the the same sort of bidding approach as maybe a Stephen Piscotty, where because he's not being highly regarded even in leagues that are still happening, you could sneak him through on the wire relatively cheap, see what happens to that lineup position for the first 10 days or so, and then make a decision probably two weeks from now and say, hey, I actually made a good cheap pickup, or it's time to move on because they're mixing in Jacoby Jones and doing some weird things with that (laughs) playing time. And I I wouldn't put that past the Tigers, but I do think Maven did enough interesting things in the underlying numbers, especially last year, that made me think the approach has changed to the point where he can be both a power and speed threat again this season. And lineup position, as we've seen with some Lesser talented players over the years, uh, it's everything. I mean, people were rostering Hanser Alberto last year, and it's a very empty batting average profile for a guy like that. Maybe mm-hmm. it can do quite a bit more. Uh, there was one outfielder I didn't write up who I kind of wish I had included in the piece. Franchi Cordero gets traded from San Diego to Kansas City this week. I think there's like this overwhelming fascination with Franchi <laughs> Cordero in the fantasy community. He's a fun player because he's very toolsy. StatCast really backs that up. You see some pretty gaudy barrel rates and high exit velocities. He's the kind of guy that he'll hit a home run and it'll go 480 feet, right? It's just that sort of fun player that everybody wants to latch onto. And I think 
sometimes when those players come around, we get lost in the fun and look right through the fact that he's struck out 38.8% of the time as a big league player so far. He's got a better chance to play on the big side of platoon in Kansas City. I think the Royals were right for making that deal. They traded a reliever, Tim Hill, to get him. It's definitely a what-could-go-right sort of move in real baseball. Do you think there's enough there for Franchi to go ahead and just pick him up right now, at least in 15-team leagues? I mean, because in a 15-team league, the best-case scenario is probably, like, and we're talking pie in the sky, Mm -hmm. like a Jock Peterson sort of fantasy value where you just try to get him out of your lineup for those partial weeks when the Dodgers face a lot of lefties. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe that's what Cordero could be if everything were to click, this guy that actually hits a ton of homers. He's a drag on your batting average because of the Ks, but you know he walks a little bit, steals the occasional base, and actually hits pretty high in the order because the OBP is not terrible. Yeah, I think, uh, I think he definitely is someone who you go after in that situation, and maybe someone who, if you feel uh, the need to be more swinging for the fences, uh, that, you, that you go after more than you would go after uh, Cameron Mabin or... Um, uh, Steven Piscotty, just because, like you said, it's a what could go right from a real life perspective. But if you think about it in the what could go right category in the fantasy world, uh, like there's probably a higher ceiling here for him. Uh, Piscotty, obviously a safer play. Certainly, it's, uh, there's no question about that. But if you're if you're swinging more for the fences here, I mean, he's going to play, right? I mean, the, the Royals acquired him to to put him out there. I mean, he's not going to be someone who who sits a ton, maybe against lefties, like you said. But you're still talking the long side of the platoon, so he's going to play. And I feel like. He can play his way into an everyday role if things go right for him. So uh, someone who I would be willing, certainly, uh, to go out and not be super aggressive on, but definitely uh, take that chance. And if I was going more for upside, maybe prioritize him because things could go right for him now that he has an everyday note out about it. Every day he wakes up, he knows I'm going to be playing baseball today. I wonder I wonder if he'll, on average, have a higher winning bid than both Piscotti I bet he will. and Maven I bet he because will. of the, the love in this community. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be the one thing that makes it hard to get him. I don't want to overpay to get him. I think he kind of fits yes. in the same yeah. range for me. Like Again, yeah, if you want to go a little more than Maven because you believe and you get a younger player kind of trending in the direction of maybe playing more, I understand that, but I'm not going much higher than probably 7% of a fab budget. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw like a $77 bid on him in a 15-team league. I'm not going to fight you on that. I think you want to go much higher. I'm probably going to go ahead and let right. someone else I, take the chance in this I guess, case. I guess I, I would also say like if I'm going to spend those $77, like if I'm committed to saying I'm cool losing these $77, I would maybe just put it to my Hicks bid you know, or put it to my Cespedes bid rather than mm-hmm. settling for Cordero. That puts you up in like the forty percent range on those guys. <laughs> I know it's crazy, right? It's crazy, but like, like if you're in that mindset already, like, I mean, those guys are real, real big time needle movers. Like, those are guys who can, I mean, like we said, would be drafted quite highly if we knew where they were going to be back in March, February, and where they're being drafted right now in leagues that are still drafting. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Uh, some other interesting names on the list this week for the position players. A couple guys that are. You have former top prospects, at least in the case of the first one, Brendan Rodgers, I think he's graduated from prospect lists, and sometimes it's the sweet spot for targeting a player. He's coming off of a shoulder surgery that's pretty major injury. I don't think he has a spot to call his own just yet. I think it's more of a speculative bid. I think the problem with a speculative bid in a year like this is you need players who are playing. Like normally, I'm stashing yes. an injured guy or someone I'm waiting for for a couple of weeks. I think you can burn one out of seven bench spots that way that's normally maybe in the beginning of the year you're getting away with two or three and then you're making those tough cuts later on but in this season I'm really not sure you can get away with that I do think the the Rockies could sort of figure it out they've got a couple of of outfielders who've been unavailable at times during camp Charlie Blackman of course is away for a positive COVID test David Dahl was banged up and often gets banged up so you know if one or both of those guys were to miss some time the shuffle for the Rockies would probably be to put Garrett Hampson in the outfield. That opens up a spot in the infield. Rodgers can play. I guess I was just really surprised that the number of leagues in which he's available, because if he gets the opportunity, I really like him, but I'm a little bit hamstrung because I don't know if I can really justify stashing him unless I have absolutely no other players like him on my roster currently. 
I think that's why the the bid percentages you put in the column are pretty much right on. 12-team watch, 15-team 2-3%, and only 8-10%. to 10%. I feel like that sums up exactly the uh, situation that Brendan Rodgers finds himself in. You just can't, you can't stash guys. Like, it's gonna, you can't, you can't do it. I was gonna say it's gonna be hard. You just can't do it. You can't stash guys this year the way that we have in the past because, I mean, stashing a guy for a week, we're talking about a huge, huge major chunk of the season where he gave you absolutely nothing, didn't even give you the hope of something, didn't even give you the illusion of hope. So that's really uh, the problem uh, for me with someone like Rodgers. And we know that the Rockies aren't going to force it. We've seen that from this team in the past. You mentioned that Hampson uh, has you know better defensive versatility, just a better glove pretty much no matter where they put him. And that's going to matter uh, for this team. And this team is you know, not necessarily desperate to get another bat in the lineup with Arenado and Story and Dahl and Blackman. I mean, this team can hit no matter what they do. So I think that the defensive versatility of Hampson could end up working against him. Obviously, the injuries are uh, are, are prevalent on this team, and that could be something that ultimately uh, helps Rodgers get into the lineup. But I, I just think he's someone who you got to be in a position where you know maybe you are comfortable not getting anything from him for a while because uh, there's definitely a risk of that happening here. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that could happen with the playing time, maybe Daniel Murphy's the primary DH every day, Mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. least against righties. That opens up first base. Ryan McMahon, who I think is going to be in the starting lineup, could move from second to first. And then I just saw something scroll by from Thomas Harding, who covers the Rockies for MLB.com. They have Garrett Hampson in a utility role. That's their plan. So it's closer to happening than you might think (laughs) if you glance at a depth chart. But it still yeah. seems like it's just one tweak away from Brendan Rodgers really getting that opportunity. Uh, part of what I really like about him, too, he was playing really well at AAA last year, 147 WRC+. I think it's important to use that number as opposed to the slash lines and, and the counting stats in isolation because, mm-hmm. A, it was the PCL. B, super happy fun ball last year really juiced up the numbers and at least right. indexing offensive production accounts for that. But you'll see if you look at like Mauricio Dubon's numbers from last year, the counting stats and everything look really good. The WRC Plus is basically league average, even though it was a, a really nice season on the surface. So low bids on Brendan Rodgers, where you've got flexibility on your bench, totally possible that you simply do not have that flexibility. Uh, Monty Harrison is the other top prospect type who I wanted to talk about. I think mm-hmm. the Marlins are probably going to do the service time thing with Harrison. And that's even with Matt Joyce and Lewis Brinson being held out of camp. Uh, So you look at that situation as one where Harrison can obviously get playing time, but he's probably going to have to wait until the second weekend of the season to actually get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, He missed a lot of time last season at AAA, but how about a 20 for 22 mark as a base dealer, a 357 OBP? There's plenty of swing and miss in Harrison's approach, but he is one of the the best all-around players the talents in the minor leagues, a 93.4 mile per hour average exit velocity that comes from Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel uh, from Fangraphs. It's hard to get minor league exit velocity numbers, so they must have got that from from source to be able to have that. Um, that puts them very high in in just translating that to big league average exit velocities, and then just a 52 percent hard hit rate to go along with it. So I think he's one of those players, Beller, like. There's there's a lot of swing and miss, and it might be there for a little while, but when he connects, he does so much damage. I I think Monty Harrison might be a better player than Franchi Cordero already, mm-hmm. and I think you're probably paying less in fab to get Monty Harrison. The problem, though, is that little Brendan Rodgers sort of twist where I think Harrison's one of the best three outfielders the Marlins could put on the field right now. We have to wait at least a little while, and that's really difficult to do. Is he a guy you're comfortable making a week ahead bid on? Right? I mean, we talk about this in football a lot where we're trying to beat the crowd, beat the rush for a guy who we think is maybe going to be uh, usable in a week or two. Uh, is he someone who you're willing to make that week ahead bid on now, knowing that if I wait till everyone wants to get him, I'm going to have to spend uh, you know, double what I have to right now? Yeah, I think it comes down to whether or not I've got the luxury of that spot, but sure. I, I, would, I would like to do that. And I think I'd be more inclined make that sort of maneuver with Harrison than I am to do it with Rodgers, if only because yeah, we've agreed. talked a lot about the difficulty of finding speed. And mm-hmm. Monty Harrison's going to bring speed to the table. He, he gets on base enough. He runs exceptionally well. The thing I like about him, too, once he gets that opportunity, 
He's going to be an above-average center fielder. Mm-hmm. Probably going to even yes. win a gold glove at some point. He's got a big arm, plenty of range, just an outstanding player. The backstory on Harrison, I feel like I tell it all the time. I'm just familiar with it because the Brewers are the team that originally drafted him. He had a chance to go play wide receiver. The University of Nebraska turned that down to sign with the Brewers when he was drafted a few years ago. Uh, and you know, Just then, stopped being a multi-sport athlete. Right, A lot of multi-sport athletes... Uh, they, they're not focused on baseball entirely. It takes a little longer for everything to fall into place. I think we just saw some signs of that last year, especially with the fact that moving up from double-A AA to triple-A, the strikeout rate came down a lot for Monty Harrison. He was at 36.9% at double-A in 2018, got down to 29.9% at triple-A. It's a pretty big year-to-year improvement. Yeah. We saw some pretty good hitters go the other direction moving from double-A to triple-A last year. So I think that's the other little thing that kind of caught my eye as I was digging in on Harrison. Yeah, and uh, and did it in a 244 plate appearance sample too. So you're talking about uh, a significant sample uh, walk rate at 10.2 percent at AAA two, and to me that signals growth, right? That signals maturation in a young player and a guy who is understanding how he's being attacked, a better understanding of the strike zone, a better understanding of his own skill set, and how he's going to succeed. All reasons, I think, to bet on Monty Harrison, and uh, he is a guy who I would be comfortable making that week ahead bid on, even knowing how. Uh, undoable stashing is this season uh, just because there's going to be so much more attention on him uh, if we get word if you know the Marlins are like all right you know we're committing to him and we have to consider like you said the defense that's a huge factor if we compare him to Brendan Rodgers like we got to try to put ourselves in the mind of the way these real life teams think about their players and defense is going to be a big thing for Harrison it's going to keep him in the lineup even if he is striking out a bit once he's with the Marlins so I think that's another big check in his favor the fact that even when he's not hitting for this team, he's going to get to play because the glove already is going to play so well. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of the analysis, just thinking about how a team is going to utilize a player uh, when the opportunity comes up like this. Uh, the other Marlin I wrote up this week is Isan Diaz. He's their primary second baseman. The range of outcomes for him is a little bit wide. Like He could lose the job, but I'm less worried about players losing the job because they can't go to AAA and get reps. Like The difference between facing pitchers at AAA and facing your own pitchers in basically extended summer camp inter-squad scenarios is actually pretty significant. I think with Diaz, we saw a lot of success at AAA last year. It goes back to what I said earlier. If you look at it in terms of WRC+, it doesn't pop quite as much as the overall numbers, but 26 homers in 102 games at New Orleans hit 305 with a 395 OBP. If he'd never debuted, like this is the trap that some players fall into. Mm-hmm. If he hadn't debuted, we'd be more excited about him. But because he came up and struggled, hit 173 with a 259 OBP, hit five homers in 49 games, he's just buried. And most projections don't like him because he had a sample that was pretty terrible at the big league level. So the most optimistic projection has uh, Isan Diaz at 233, 312, 400. And that doesn't really move the needle for anybody outside of NL only leagues. But I think the interesting thing here is that if you look at a AAA leaderboard and look at the production of Isan Diaz compared to someone like Nick Solak, who the fantasy community really likes, they were actually very similar players at AAA last year. And Diaz might even have a safer path to playing time. So I'm kind of in on Isan Diaz in deeper leagues only. It's got to be at least 15 teams. And the reason I'm there is because I could probably throw a $1 or $2 bid out of 1000 at him and end up getting him. And I have that playing time with Diaz that I don't have immediately with Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, all great points. And uh, the the point that really, I think, drives it home is what you said about the fact that the Marlins can't just send him to AAA and still get him you know, good reps. And a, a team like the Marlins that even in a 60-game season when anything can happen, probably not expecting to compete. Let's just say they won't be surprised if they go 24-36, and 36, right? <laughs> so, uh, so they... It's all the more reason to keep Diaz at the major league level, no matter almost no matter what he does. And maybe things get a little tricky if they do have Harrison and they move Jonathan VR out of center and you know move Jonathan VR back to second base. But I still think that this is one of those guys that the Marlins are comfortable failing with this season if it means that he gets a ton of major league reps and they learn about the sort of player he can be for them for 2021. I just think he's one of those guys that's totally forgotten about. I think that Marlins lineup is weak enough too where. If a young player starts playing really well, there is a ability to rise into a much more prominent spot very quickly, and that brings more runs, more RBIs. Uh, so just keep that in mind, too, as you're thinking about 
Uh, Isan Diaz is a possible deep league middle infield replacement. Uh, a couple other names. We'll kind of rapid fire through these. You can let me know if any of these guys really stand out to you. I wrote up Steven Souza Jr. for this week's piece. I think he's kind of the quiet winner from the Universal DH in Chicago. You know, Franklin Barreto's path in Oakland's a little clearer. They made that trade, uh, sending Jorge Mateo to San Diego a little while back. But I think as the season begins, Barreto might be looking at a small side platoon with Tony Kemp. So that could be a bit of a problem. Uh, Johan Camargo was in the piece this week, it, mostly because the Yasiel Puig edition fell through, and that could actually lead Camargo to some playing time either at third base or maybe occasionally in the DH spot, or if they float that DH spot, Camargo can play all over the infield and gather some time there. Uh, Nicky Lopez came up just as a filler for deep, deep leagues. I, I still don't know if there's anything there for mixed leagues. It's just more of a, a wait-and-see player, but it's funny to think back to how excited I was about Lopez when he came up with that 3.6% K rate at AAA Omaha last year. Just an absolutely impossible number. Like It was cool when Williams Astadio did it, and it seemed less <laughs> cool when Nicky Lopez did it for some reason. Uh, Joey Bart was included in the column, mostly because I was getting questions about him. I think it's really hard to tell if the Giants are just posturing right now to not call him up, or if they're actually not going to bring him up. <laughs> it's kind of a open question like I could see them just holding him back all year calling him up beginning of 2021 and moving on from that he's ready I think to catch in the big leagues already defensively he's not going to embarrass himself as a hitter he's going to be a low average cheap power guy I think from the jump if he gets the opportunity but the most I could do is what was suggested in the comments someone said do the min bid thing wait a week see if he gets the call and then let him go it is hard to find impact catchers and I think the fact that people are interested in Isaiah Kiner-Falefa is probably a, a good support for that claim. I'm just legitimately convinced that Joey Bart's going to get held down all year because I'm such a service time cynic. <laughs> I mean, you have all the reason to be. Let's be honest about that. I mean, every single team in the majors has shown its true colors on that, so I think you have all the reason to be. But I do like the throw him in bid, see what happens for a week if you if you you have to cut him after that, then you, know, you didn't really lose anything. So I think that, I think that's the way I would attack Bart if I was feeling some need at the catcher position too. Yeah. Uh, Tyler Heineman's probably the guy that if you're throwing a min bid in for very deep leagues, like mostly NL only leagues, mm-hmm. I like him a little bit more than Rob Brantley. Um, sure. but I'm not going to go too far down the rabbit hole of the depth catchers that they've piled up. I think Chadwick Trump is a name I'd never seen before until I looked at their depth chart. This is a great week. name. He's also in the mix. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good <laughs> name. It's a good random third catcher sort of name yeah let's move on to the pitching side let's uh talk about a few of these other guys we mentioned rich hill up at the top i think austin voth has been an interesting player to look at this week Mm -hmm. he's not guaranteed a spot in the rotation yet but i think joe ross's decision to opt out has really made voth kind of the front runner in a competition with eric fetty doesn't throw real hard averages 92.7 on the fastball has a good curveball if you go to like pitcher list and look at some of the gifts of Austin Voth the curveball is a legitimately good pitch he also mixes in a slider and a changeup so he's got four pitches he's got command and he's on a good team and that's about as much as you can ask for when you're looking at pitchers in a 15 team league the thing I like about the Nats they get the Yankees in that opening series Voth's not going to pitch those first three games they get Miami and they get Baltimore for their next two series, so it could fall in a way where Voth gets at least one of those teams, and possibly two, depending on how the Nationals handle their off days. I'd probably only expect one start, because I think they have off days to work around it, but I think just because of the schedule alone, I'm interested in scooping up Voth for a reasonable bid, and then just kind of taking a wait-and-see approach. You know, Sometimes you pick up a guy to stream him, and they end up sticking him on your roster a lot longer than you expect. And the sort of guy who could do that, certainly. I mean, if he gets those two starts, you're talking about one-sixth of his starts already, right off the jump, coming against two of the worst teams in the majors in Miami and Baltimore. So you got to really like that uh, possibility. And I do think he can stick in this rotation. Love the fact that he's on a good team. Uh, love the fact that uh, he's not necessarily going to be hugely pushed uh, by Eric Fetty, right? It's not like they're holding uh, Mackenzie Gore back, for example, to get Austin Voth into their uh, rotation. So you would think that... I would think that whichever one they do end up really going with, they're going to give that guy some opportunities even in a 60-game season, right? They're not going to have too quick of a leash on him. Maybe it's a situation where they end up piggybacking one another. I could certainly see that happening. But I do think that Voth is uh, is the guy who I would be 
targeting in a way that uh, you know, seemed maybe more aggressive than what he warranted just because of what could happen right, right for him in this Washington rotation. Yeah, there really aren't that many starters who are available this week. Yeah. Uh, I think that's one of the things that really struck me digging through the wire. It's a lot of multi-inning relievers. Right, it's right. a guy, Trevor Richards, who I think has been maybe mentioned on like eight straight episodes of Rates and Barrels. I, I bring him <laughs> up all the time because he's the perfect example of a player that was not utilized correctly by his former team. He wasn't even terrible as a starter, but the Marlins just went from starting him to short relief. Mm-hmm. The Rays are not going to do that. He's at least going to be a multi-inning reliever. There's a chance he's going to start. Looking at some Rays news from Sunday morning, uh, Yanni Chirinos was spotted at camp for the first time, I think, since camp started. So there's a chance that maybe he's back for the start of the season. Brendan McKay is still absent, though. So Richards is really in that kind of swingman spot where a lot of people are curious for this first week, should you be targeting non-starters but guys that can go two, three, possibly four innings? And I think it's a great way to go, especially because I don't think the bulk of these guys are going to cost a whole lot in fab. And there is a chance that you get a bit lucky that you vulture a win because of the way that usage plays out. You know, I think Jonathan Loisega kind of fits into this group as well. Yeah. Uh, the Yankees seem like they're a little more committed to keeping him in a relief role, whereas I could see the case where the Rays would actually be willing to give Richards another chance as an actual starter. Yeah, I think you're you're totally right about that. Loisiga really is interesting to me, though. Uh, back way back when I did our uh, uh, series of uh, beat writer roundtables uh, on this show for uh, what we thought was going to be the start of this season in March. I, I keep saying "uh" because I'm like, man, when when did that happen? When exactly? Today <laughs> I'm like trying to jog my own memory over here. I was in March, and when I talked to Lindsay Adler, you know, back then we thought James Paxton was going to be missing the start of the season, and at that point. They had committed to Loisiga as the guy who was going to take Paxton's spot in the rotation. Of course, that no longer is in play. But to me, it gives us a window into how the Yankees view Loisiga, how valuable they think he is to their team, how much of a burden they think he can handle. And when you look at the back end of that bullpen, we know how locked in uh, they are there. I think Loisiga could be one of the really valuable swingmen this season. And you're, I think you want at least one of those guys on your team. You want whether it's uh, you know a, a pure bulk reliever, whether it's a guy who's going to make a handful of starts while also being an important reliever for his team. I think when you look at fantasy baseball champions this year, you're going to see at least one impact guy like that because of the way how many teams are going to attack this season with their pitchers. And so that's where Loisiga uh, becomes really interesting to me. Richards could fit in that as well. Uh, if I was going for one of the two, though, I think I would prefer Loisiga just because I feel more confident in what his role is going to be for his team rather than Richards. Yeah, I think for me it's perfect trust in in the Rays and sure. how they handle their Makes pitching sense. staff. Yeah. So yeah. they're in the same bucket in terms of mm-hmm. the way I'm looking at them and the situations which I would use them. Are you comfortable rostering guys like that in a 12-team league? I've definitely got them targeted for 15 teams and deeper. I'm wondering if they belong on rosters, even just like as streaming types in a 12. You can get them for yeah. a near minimum bid. I'm not sure if you really need them, right, in 12-team. I mean, 14-15-team, I think you really are going to need guys like that. In 12, even with this season being as screwy as it is, I, I still think you can get by with your usual starter-closer uh, starter mix. So I'm not sure they're going to be quite as valuable in those leagues. I still think uh, you know high-K non-closing relievers are going to be valuable in 12-teamers. Um, guys like Ryan Presley is always the first one who jumps to mind for me. Uh, I'm not sure these guys have quite that same fit in a 12-teamer. So let's talk about Clark Schmidt for a second real quick, too, because he's been impressive at Yankees camp. We've talked about the difficulty of stashing players. Is he AL-only league only for you right now, even though there's a lot of talent there? Because he seems a little further away from making an impact even than the multi-inning relievers that we just talked about. Yeah, I think probably that's where he fits in, although we have a Beat Writer Roundtable column coming out this week. I believe our pal Nando DeFino is dropping that on Tuesday, um, and in that, I can give you a little sneak peek. Lindsay Adler, again, getting her second mention on this show, uh, talked about Clark Schmidt really impressing uh, since summer camp has started for the Yankees and could be someone who ends up on more of a fast track than we expect if we just you know look back at what he's done over recent seasons in the minors. So uh, that certainly opened my eyes, not to the point where I'm you know going after him. Uh, just as an example, I have a 14-team league that is drafting on Wednesday. When I'm sitting in that draft, I'm not going to be thinking, oh, I got to circle around to get Clark Schmidt, but definitely someone who is at least now more on my radar than he was. And I think definitely in an AL-only league, the sort of guy who you're going to want to throw 
a few bucks at to see if you can get on your team. Uh, again, another guy who we love guys on good teams, right, DVR? And the Yankees are going to be a very good team this season. Yeah, they really are. And one more interesting thing with the Yankees is that they have a little bit of instability in the back of their bullpen. There are some messy, messy closer situations right <laughs> yes. now. Uh, so Zach Britton's kind of on the radar as a, a short-term pickup who can get you some saves. I would say that Britton and you know, Ryan Helsley in St. Louis could be really interesting, although I think I saw some news that Giovanni Gallegos might be on his way to camp, so that could really make that situation confusing as the, the next few hours play out. Uh, Ryan Presley in Houston becomes interesting because apparently Roberto Ozuna hadn't thrown off a mound as of like Friday. That seems kind of weird, kind of <laughs> underreported. Uh, Austin Adams in Seattle looks like maybe he's going to be part of a committee. Corey Knable in Milwaukee could be there to take some opportunities from Josh Hader. I think we've seen the Brewers get really flexible with their bullpen. And Keone Kella was placed on the IL at the end of this week for undisclosed reasons. So it could be Nick Birdie, it could be Michael Felice, it could be anybody in Pittsburgh finishing out games there. I bring them all up kind of in one big glob because yeah. if if we knew any of these guys were going to get the job and keep it, that would change the way we'd bid on any one of them. I don't think this is a week to go overboard for a closer. I, I think even with Helsley, who I like, there are so many other options in St. Louis as they start getting more guys back. We talked about it on the Friday show where they have been just ravaged by injuries. They've had players away for a variety of different reasons. I think Helsley could be good, but I think the range of outcomes includes him just being the seventh inning guy by the end of the first week. So, if you want to be aggressive because you need the saves, sure. You want to throw 10 to 15% of your budget at him in a 15-team mixed league. I don't think that's reckless, but I think you know that that could be dead money really quickly. Yeah, I, the way that I would attack any of these relievers, and I think this is something that holds true uh, all season long unless we know someone is getting a closer job, is just to trust the talent. Because at least you know that that guy, if he's talented, is going to have some sort of role that is likely to be meaningful for you. So let's go back to Ryan Presley. Like, even if Roberto Osuna comes back today, we get word later to you and I post this episode in, in true podcast fashion. Five minutes later, <laughs> uh, Roberto Osuna is you know, throwing off a mound and looking great and going to close for the Astros, right? You still know that Ryan Presley is going to have the role that he's had for this team the last few years, that he's likely to succeed in that role, and he's still going to contribute to you good ratios, and a lot of strikeouts. We know that about Ryan Presley. We can't say we know that about any of these other guys, Ryan Helsley or Austin Adams or, or what Corey Knable might do for, for the Brewers. I think Zach Britton fits in that same thing with, with uh, Presley. We know what these guys are, and you know that you're going to find a way to be able to use them. So for me, I'm not worrying about role just yet, and I'll trust that if I need a reliever, I'm going to trust the talent and, and, tr and believe that that's going to ultimately lead him to being a valuable guy for me, even if he never gets a save opportunity the entire season. Yeah, I think that's a smart way to go about it. And to that end, Zach Britton doesn't strike a ton of guys out. I don't think you're going to want to have him in your lineup in most mixed leagues once Aroldis Chapman eventually comes back. So, you know, if you are bidding on Britton, you're doing it only for those handful of early saves, and you're going to be pretty quick to let him go, most right. likely, once Chapman comes back and once Chapman is healthy enough to close again. Um, so they're definitely in an order in which I think you could shuffle them around in the column quite a bit. I do like Presley most years anyway. I try to roster him as long as I can. Eventually, the non-closer setup guy that I mean, they're waiting to get the job or is more of a staff filler, that guy gets bumped off the roster eventually because of more pressing issues that sure. come up. Uh, Seattle is just such a clown show in the <laughs> bullpen right now. Like, I think Austin Adams is their best reliever by far. The fact that they're not just going to make him the closer is pretty frustrating. But they're also not going to win that many games, so you're, you're going to take a little bit of a hit there in terms of those opportunities. If it takes a few weeks for them to land on him as their primary guy, that could be kind of frustrating. So mm -hmm. I tempered the bids there. I mean, Corey Knable's really good. I think people maybe lose sight of that. Like Hater's amazing, and the way the Brewers manage their bullpen leads you to believe that Knable could get half the save chances once he's good to go. I kind of wonder, coming off Tommy John surgery, if his availability is going to be dictated purely by some kind of predetermined schedule rather than just using him in the highest leverage spots when Hayter's not available, right? Like, I don't think it's mm -hmm. quite that clear just yet, given that this is about the time that he was going to be getting into games anyway. Maybe June was a possibility initially, but it just seemed like the way his recovery was going, he wasn't going to be immediately himself whenever he returned in the first part of this season, even though he's closer to being that guy now. 
I'm still sort of tempering my expectations there. And Birdie is just my best guess for that bullpen. <laughs> but that's yeah. a, that is not a confident uh, sort of bid at all. It's definitely a little more of like a min-bid sort of mm-hmm. consideration because he could end up being the sixth or seventh inning guy the very first day of the season and not even getting close to a save opportunity. And that would be uh, really disappointing. Uh, a couple questions to get to before we sign off. This one comes from Cujo. Thoughts on filling a final pitching slot in NFBC League for the first weekend. He's got four relievers plus four starters lined up to start. One open slot, and it's a barren 15-team waiver wire for a main event. Search for the best middle or long relief guy. I, I think especially with only the three games for every team to begin the season, mm-hmm. that's the best way to go. Uh, yeah. I think it's it's the Richards, Loisiga, uh, guys in that cluster that you're definitely looking at. Guys on good teams who maybe have matchups against bad teams, more or less. Yeah, guys who are going to contribute likely uh, in this first week of the se- or this first weekend of the season, and guys who you know maybe over these three games uh, show you something that makes you want to give uh, a longer tryout to on your roster. That's the route I would go to. Yeah, if there's some sort of really cheap short reliever who might get a save or two, mm-hmm. sure you could throw that in there and then just cut that player loose. But I, I wouldn't go wouldn't go overboard on. Yeah whoever you're going to use in that spot. I'd still rather have I'd still rather have the middle or long relief guy than like saying, "Hey, maybe this team will win a close game and maybe this guy will get a save." Yeah, there's a few more conditions uh, going <laughs> that route <laughs> yeah. that have to be met. Uh, I got a question here from Eric. He wants to know if he would drop either one of AJ Puck or Yanni Chirinos to pick up Aaron Hicks or Avisail Garcia in a head-to-head league. He just picked up Rich Hill off of waivers. Puck, oh boy. I <laughs> I don't think I can drop Puck. Uh, mentioned just before, Chirinos back at camp. I think if I'm going to make a move there, Yanni's the drop, mm-hmm. and Hicks is probably the pickup over Garcia. This is clearly a pretty shallow mixed league, just right. given that both of those guys are available. Right. I think that makes it easier to replace a guy like Yanni Chirinos. Mm-hmm. So I'm going... Yeah, I'm going to drop Yanni. I'm going to pick up Hicks versus Garcia. I... It, which side of that one do you it's, fall it's, on? That's that's definitely a tough one. That is definitely a tough. I, I I still fall on the on the Hicks side, um, but man, I mean that is that is definitely. I would uh, let me put it like this: I fall on the Hicks side. I like to be invested in the Yankees lineup. I believe in the power for Hicks. Certainly, not that I don't believe in what Avisail Garcia does, um, but I just think that I, I trust Hicks's underlying skills, and I think that you know the fact that he's been playing in intra squad games for. The better part of two weeks now uh, suggests to me that the injury is behind him. He's healthy. He's ready to go for opening day. Um, but I, it, I could make the I could make the Garcia argument just as easily, and I would be receptive to the Garcia argument, even if it wouldn't convince me. But I'm with you that uh, I would make the move. I would get Hicks. I would drop Chirinos, and I would hold on to Puck. So uh, hopefully, the unanimity, Eric, helps you out there. Yeah, I think for me, I like Garcia just a little more right now, but. I know Hicks could be better. Like that's mm-hmm. that's part of it. I, I think with the Brewers, Garcia's playing time is really safe. Universal Definitely. DH moves Braun. So I, with Hicks, you, we are still dealing with that possibility of occasional days off just to rest his elbow a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that's the very very thin difference between them. But there is sure. not much on the margins there. So I think Garcia's we got an injury history too. He does. He right. does. Uh, so Yanni Chirinos is the agreed drop, but we're yes. a little bit split on which of those outfielders to pick up, which makes me always feel bad because I <laughs> wish we could at least agree and uh, steer someone in the exact right direction. It's it's a it's going to be a good move though. Like I, I mean, I think that it's a it's no doubt about it that you're going to be happier with one of those outfielders on your team than Yanni Chirinos. Yes, I think so. Especially if we're talking like a 10, 12 team mixed yeah. league, maybe even something a little smaller than that. I think those outfielders are going to do mm-hmm. a bit more damage. I think you can find viable options on the pitching front who can come close to replicating what Yanni Chirinos can do. Uh, even though I, I seem to be a Yanni Chirinos fan for what it's <laughs> worth. I don't know. He's always, he's always been on my radar the last couple of years as a streamer, or as a guy that I could pick up and actually roster for quite a few weeks at a time. That is going to wrap things up for this installment of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast. Hopefully, you're listening to our other shows, Fantasy Baseball in 15. It's every weekday morning. Al Melchior leads that one. 
myself and Michael Beller, we rotate as the co-hosts on that show. But that's all the, the news-related stuff. We get that knocked out every weekday morning. So be sure to subscribe and listen to that show if you don't already have that. If we didn't talk about some of the players that you're thinking about adding or dropping, you can hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Derek Van Riper. He is at M. Beller. Good luck with Fab here in week one. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns on Wednesday. <laughs>